0: You are listening to TURN NOTH on Dublin Digital Radio.
1: It's the owners of these wind farms, right? So we're saying we want community involvement. And we know that in Ireland, the government, whatever system has come in place here, We are very poor. We have actually centralised our government to such an extent that all the power now resides and the money resides in Dublin, right? And we want to see more community activism, more community life, where communities take control of their own lives.
0: It's December 2022. The past three years or so, shaped by a global pandemic have been characterised by a sense of acceleration. Not just because of the sensation of time lost to lockdowns and isolation, but because the many intertwined crises we face as a species have intensified. The accumulation of wealth by the richest corporations on the planet has accelerated. The siphoning of wealth from the poorest has accelerated. The desperate grab for resources has accelerated. Here in Ireland, the number of homeless people grows in proportion to the number of empty buildings. Hoarded by venture capitalists. The cost of the basic necessities of life soars in proportion to the profits of the energy, food and transport corporations. Human civilization, driven by the capitalist economic system, is pushing the planet's life support systems beyond their capabilities. Over the past six months, I've collected interviews with grassroots activists and educators from around Ireland. Over the next eight episodes, between now and next March, I'll share their voices with you. I hope that in listening to these people, you'll be able to see the common struggles uniting these various local and national movements. And most importantly, to see that there are real, tangible, achievable solutions to all of them. My name is Michael Gallagher. I'm a local
2: farmer. Well, i Edward Horgan. Farmer I spent 22 and a half years in the Irish. I'm forces.
3: Seamus Diskin. I'm from Galway. I, my name is James McMartin, 42 years old, I'm, I'm a teacher with a multi of armour.
0: So yeah, my name's Annie and I live in Galway. And I'm from and, fire and,
1: fire and, fire and fire. an activist with People For Profit and a, a my musician. My name is Lucky
2: so. Kambule, I am co-founder of this group called the Movement of Asylum. So,
1: I'm Amanda. I am with the Dublin Three branch of CATU, the Community Action. Well, Action. I'm Fidel O'Kane, and I'm from Save Our Sparance Group. Hi,
4: Raymond Gamble out of, you know, Germany, Pennsylvania. Yeah. People want to call us activists. I am not an activist, I'm an educator. I'm here telling you what the industry the industry has done to me, my town, and my friends and other workers that have died.
0: During the summer, I travelled to McCroom in County Cork to meet Ted Cook. He took me for a walk through the Gaira, a national park and special area conservation near the townland of Toonsbridge.
4: Yeah, it's a big edible plant. Looks like hemlock, but it's not hemlock. You would never touch hemlock. A lot of hemlock here. Are you familiar with hemlock? No. Oh, for a draft of vintage that long hath been cooled in the deep delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green, the blushful hippocrene, with purple stained lip, with beady bubbles at the brim, as if of hemlock I had drunk. I think that was Keats. But it was about uh, the right dose of hemlock, you trip, but it's getting the right dose. Yeah. I mean, I think, was it not Socrates' days, was forced to drink hemlock? Ah,
0: uh, okay, yeah,
4: yeah. That's hemlock. Be hemlock, this stuff be yeah. careful not to
2: touch it,
4: yeah. Parsley yeah. looking stuff? Yeah, it's parsley looking, same family, correct. Right. I don't know why that's in that, because it should be at its optimum at the moment. Maybe.
0: We walked through the Gara for around yeah. four hours. I'll share some of what I learned from him here. Six
4: miles from my townland back upriver of the Lee, we're in the Lee River in a special area of conservation, nature reserve, natural heritage area and special protection area for rare birds. A place called the Guerra. It's just a mile and a half out from McCroom town in northwest Cork. So it's really a vast wetland of about 800 acres.
0: In the 1950s, as part of a hydroelectric scheme, the ESB clear felled ancient oak and yew forest, one of the last in Western Europe leaving many thousands of stumps behind, holding the wetland together. They built two dams then, which flooded the area completely, displacing many animals, human and non-human alike.
4: It's a really very special place and I'm honoured to introduce you to this place. Rare in Europe. This is the only of its type of forest west of Czechoslovakia. There's none in Britain, France, Germany, Italy, Spain. Now, what is thrilling, and I hope that you can convey this, I've been watching this for 40 years, since before it was designated by Charlie Hawley in September 87. I've been watching it very carefully. Look at these old ancient mud banks. Because the ESB have begun to open the dam more. There's less inundation. The willow, oak and alder, the ewe never came back. The salmon never came back but all of the other species recorded in 1954 by Helen O'Reilly, the botanist, every other insect, lichen, moss, look, that's pure woodland coming down the river. Mm. Self-repair. So the ESB that uh, compulsory bought the entire, this part of the valley to make the hydroelectric scheme, to fill the valley with water. Mm. They never took out the, the deep rootings stumps of oak they're holding the islands together while a new generation of trees is is coming forward they were not there four years ago and you can even pick out the rusty willows see that's all rust willow so that the place is very very much alive it's a very unique type of a of a system it is described as imperfectly understood which is great isn't it (laughs) i love that
0: I wish there was more things that we realised that we really don't understand. That outlook that Ted wishes for is one that I've encountered in some of the people I met this year. A humble, curious attitude towards the world and the immediate environment. An understanding that we still have a lot to learn. One of those people is Fergal Anderson, a fruit and veg farmer from County Galway, and one of the founders of Tull of who you'll hear more about in later episodes. Fergal took me on a tour of the farm, and we had a long discussion about empowerment, autonomy, and food sovereignty, which you'll hear throughout the series.
3: Okay, my name is Ferg Landersen, I'm here, this is Leaf and Root Farm. So this was a, a hay meadow, I suppose, about 10 years ago. It was just an open meadow and um, we moved back into it to try and sort of set up a, a fr- fruit and vegetables for local production is what we were looking at, local local supply, supply and supply local markets, I suppose, is what we, we thought when we moved back and that's what we've done. Um, and, and now we've, we have a, a farm which supplies direct into restaurants mainly restaurants in galway and uh, we've done different things over the years we had a community supported agriculture project we've sold in local markets and we might go back to doing some of those things we we'll kind of sell it where it's easiest and where we can get a good price and our focus has always been trying to make a livelihood for ourselves so like making a living from the land from producing whatever we can to mm. to, to sell into the local markets
0: what most mol- mol- major to to start to see from a farming background? Or Not you... from
3: a farming background, no. I did a master's back in 2005, 2006 in Galway in public advocacy and activism. It was the first year of that master's. And at the end of it, we had to do some work experience. And myself and a my friend of mine, we, we saw this, there was a big meeting, a G, the G8 meeting in, in Rostock in Germany. And so we looked at the organisations that were kind of mobilising for it and we volunteered with one of those organisations. And that organisation was called La Via Campesina. So it was a farming organization which we didn't know much about uh, at the time but we went over there to this huge mobilization one of the last big summit mobilizations against the G8 and it was in northern Germany uh, and they had thousands of people staying in these camps you know and like uh, the, the farmers had come from all over the world and and we just found them really down-to-earth really driven and they had a kind of clear alternative which was something I always kind of found a bit lacking when we were talking about like you know political and social change that we, we we people weren't sure what we really wanted, but they were sure what they wanted. They they were talking about this thing called food sovereignty. They were talking about you know social justice and agricultural reform, and and I began for me it, it, a lot of things clicked together there, and I think we began to see okay look, there a lot of the, answers to a lot of the problems, that, the interconnected problems that were that we could see happening you know, even 15 or 20 years ago, which were climate change or you know unsustainable sort of neoliberal growth models and extraction and the concentration of wealth they were kind of they had they had a kind of very grassroots response to that which was based in this kind of you know more autonomy uh, land-based uh, and in the democratization of food and agricultural systems which for me are the most important kind of systems that human beings organize we don't realize how, how fundamental they are because it's so abundant in our society you know our access to food but actually it's it's the most important thing in our in our whole political and economic uh, structures you know food yeah. is, is, is is absolutely fundamental food shelter community basic things health and I, I suppose, and we, what they were talking about was was how much our food system had become, and has become controlled by uh, corporations and large capital and private interests rather than public interests or community or or you know or, or the people. So they're talking about democratization and they're talking about a reform and a change to that and, and, and I suppose it was I found that very inspiring and I ended up actually working with them for a couple of years in, in Brussels so like they, the, a job came, became available in their mm. Brussels office and I worked over there for a few years but we always had this, always had this idea of coming back here and I suppose that, that became more concrete as the years went by and uh, as you know I was visiting a lot of farms uh, through my work Mm. and seeing a lot of alternatives in practice. And I said to myself, well, this is not impossible. This is actually something that I could do as well. Yeah, yeah. And in some ways, you know, it's a very tangible thing because, you know, you can spend an awful lot of time answering emails and uh, on Zoom meetings and Skype Skype calls back then. And you really don't feel like you've got as much done, you know, whereas I think, you know, we wanted to do something real that we could throw ourselves into with our hands and our bodies and, and feel that we were actually make, making doing something. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, when we first moved back then, 10 or 11 years ago, myself and my partner, I mean, people thought we were, we were crazy. And, you know, that was just a kind of a whimsical notion. And uh, even good friends have told me that, you know, since. And I think they didn't really realise how driven we were to, to actually make it work. And yeah, you, yeah. you kind of have to be, you know, there's a lot of long hours put in and it's not always easy. But, like, we were very kind of clear that we wanted to make a go of it. I'd say it's not easy as well because the support structures aren't there at all. And, like, there's no real... You know, my, the first interactions I had with things like the Chagask or local organisation, you know, I was trying to find out, was there funding available? Was there any supports available for what we were trying to do? Uh, and the answer was no. And I took a long time to even get no as an answer. There's a lot of grey areas and, you know. So that made it more difficult, I think. But, I mean, hopefully that's changing. And I think one of the things that we're trying to do with Talabio is make things more accessible, make it easier for people to, to get access to the, the information uh, uh, about how to sort of set up a sustainable food systems. Uh, but I suppose to also... Uh, lobby for better policies which support people who are doing the right thing, rather than mm. trying to entice people away from doing the wrong thing. So, like, I mean, we want to reward people, farmers that are that are making good decisions about land use, um, and I think that if we do that, we'll we'll see, you know, we we'll see changes because that's that might move other farmers in that direction too. So, I mean, it should always be a consideration what the impact is. I mean, you know, obviously farmers need to make a living from the land, but we also need to take care of it. We need to make sure that it's uh, that there's room for other ecosystems and to exist around us and mm. for all that.
0: One of the projects underway at Leaf and Root Farm is the rehabilitation of a
3: neglected plantation forest. We're trying to build a synergy between the woodland and um, and the vegetable farm.
0: Right. What, what, what would that entail?
3: <coughs> well, we want to start seeing how we can use materials from the woodland, such as wood chip to like, uh, you know, if we can inoc- inoculate wood chip with beneficial fungi, for example, and use it as a mulch around some of the uh, fruit trees or yeah. you know things like that so there's all sorts of possibilities so this is mostly ash in here ash with a spruce kind of it was planted ash with spruce in between which is an unusual combination about 30 years ago and um, the spruce was meant to be taken out oh, 25 years ago but it never happened and so it's you can see it's kind of grown up underneath mm. the ash canopy which is So, what we're doing at the moment is taking out all the spruce. Uh, We're chipping a lot of it and using some of it for fuel. And obviously we've got the ash dieback problem. Mm. Uh, As you can see that in a lot of those trees, we've got ash dieback.
0: Ash dieback is a disease caused by an invasive fungus, which was first brought into Ireland around 2012. It's estimated that the majority of Irish ash will die as a result.
3: That's part of the reason I was down here thinning in the summer, so we can see which ones are most badly affected and taking them out first. And we will just have to see how we manage that. I mean, this this woodland, it's not a commercial woodland. We want we want to manage it for biodiversity, and 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 so I, I, we want to manage it as a kind of, you know, a mixed native woodland, and and we're gonna to have to see what regeneration we get when these trees die or when we remove them. And mm. so it's just a, you know it's it's a, it's a lot of work, but like I said, there's there's potential here for kind of integrating some production in here. Maybe or it could be animals in the long-term or medium-term with, you know, some agroforestry. We, we can see already so there's a lot of ash regeneration, but we're also getting other species like oak um, regenerating in here. And I think that's where we'd be looking for to, to encourage that. Yeah, yeah. And that'll be the transition maybe from this type of woodland where you can see as well, there's things like uh, elder coming up, you know, yeah, yeah. so like, I mean, we, we, we just encourage certain species and, and, and discourage other ones and try and transition it to a kind of more natural uh, woodland you know because it yeah, was planted this but like so I mean it's not it's not a natural woodland as such but we can begin to see how it can transform little by little yeah, yeah. you know it's just a lot of uh, a lot of labor you know and time and, and it's again you know you have to I mean there's lots of things I'd like to do which don't necessarily earn me any money so yeah, you, have you have to, to kind of that. balance all those things out that's yeah. unfortunately, but but I mean, we're trying to see how, I mean, a lot of the things that we're trying to do here, for example, you know, be beneficial for biodiversity, or like we've, we've certainly got things like sparrowhawks nesting in here, and we want to manage the land as best as possible for that. So mm. we'd be looking as well for, you know, rewards for that in terms of government supports, because I mean, at the moment, agricultural subsidies go towards land use that, that is like agricultural. Mm-hmm. And we, I mean, we, we should also be supporting, you know, managing habitat, you know, beneficial yeah, yeah. habitats, and, and seeing how we can you know, encourage farmers to do, to do that more because I think there is work in that. I mean, humans have to interact. Humans can, can interact with the landscape and, and create more diversity and more space for habitat and species. I don't think it's always about taking humans out of the landscape. I think there's, there's, there's places where you want to do that as well. Take mm. all human impacts away, like really wild. But I think in the agricultural landscape is actually incredibly diverse if it's, if it's managed well. Yeah, yeah. And like the human, humans can have a beneficial impact on the land and on, uh, on habitats and on biodiversity, you know, if they're making the right decisions and if they're encouraged to make the right decisions. So I think that's something that kind of gets lost in the debate a little bit as well. And we, should, yeah, yeah. we, need, we need to start talking about how we can do that and how we can.
0: Back in the Guerra, the story of human interaction is a complicated one. Almost destroyed and certainly altered forever. Not maliciously, but through ignorance. But then maintained and respected.
4: A lot of people. Oh would come here, finding solace and consolation because this place hasn't changed. There's a, that sense of continuity is good for our mental health. This place is not man-made. It's a priority European site because there's no other of its of its resemblance. There's nothing else like this class of Sally, Alder, Ash uh, swamp forest. Uh, west of the Czechoslovakian, the, the Ural Mountains in Eastern Europe. There's nothing equivalent in Britain or across the continent, Mediterranean or the Alpine climates. And uh, throughout those 28, 26 months of, of COVID, this place really flourished. It's been flourishing really since it was backfilled with water under the hydroelectric scheme of 1954. Uh, Now a Helen O'Reilly a botanist came down during the clear fell you can see the thousands of stumps of oak and yew this was also a yew forest we keep in mind on the higher Islands within the Guaira, uh, you would like the limestone. So
0: those old, those st- what we see sticking up out of the water there, they're old stumps from the... From the forest, from the, out, forest. Well, from the gl-
4: post-glacial forest, the ancient forest. Yeah. When the water drops, Tom, you can see not just hundreds, tens of thousands. The entire thing was one great forest all the way back to my townland, back to a place called Drumkara Bridge about seven kilometers up river, this was one great guerra. Now we've about 64,000 townlands in Ireland and several hundred townlands called Guaira, which means like, as I say, a swamp forest, a flooded forest or a wooded valley. This would be globally a very, very large, it's not just a floodplain and it's not just a marshland. It's a, it's a vast, the Irish word uh, for river meadow would be inch, or callows, the callows of the Shannon. Callow would be um, river meadows, flood meadows. This is just one vast flood meadow. This is not man-made. You can't go in there since Neolithic and earlier times. The glacier came from just beside that mountain, Sheha, was the path of the glacier. It followed the lee right down here, and it took away all of this mountain. This was a vast mountain. The weight of the ice flattened the mountains. And as it moved this way, it couldn't go any other way because the rock was too hard. It bared the valley down to limestone, down to the original floor of an ancient tropical sea. And it kept moving. It pushed there, it couldn't go. It tried there, all the
0: way. Ted took me walking for almost six hours, four of which I recorded. Now, obviously, I can't play all of that for you here, but if you want to hear the full interview with Ted Cook, you can subscribe to Turning Earth on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash turning earth. I strongly recommend listening to that walk with Ted. His deep love and appreciation of the plants and animals of the Gare is infectious. If you want to get a glimpse of what a walk with Ted is like, you can check out the YouTube channel of the Woodland League. Ted is a heritage specialist with the Heritage Council, and he facilitates heritage and nature walks around County Cork. You can look that up on heritageinschools.ie This series has been made possible partially through the financial support of Glushuk. Glushuk are an environmental and social justice NGO that give logistical, financial and educational support to various campaign groups. Glushuk paid for some new equipment and also covered my fuel costs so that I could travel the country interviewing people. Without their support and encouragement this definitely wouldn't exist, so mila to them. Many, many hours of work have gone into this podcast and I'm trying to make the work financially sustainable. And that's only possible through listener support, so If you'd like to keep this project going, please sign up on Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash turning earth. On Patreon, for five euros a month, you'll get access to the full interviews, but also book reviews, and historical, political, and philosophical audiobooks, which I'm going to start working on in the next couple of weeks. For two euros fifty a month, you can get access to just the audiobooks. Now, I'll I'll be starting with Labour and Irish History by James Connolly, releasing a chapter two or three times per month. Now, I've made that first tier, two fifty, as low as I can, because I want these texts to be accessible especially James Connolly and the likes of that. I think studying history and political philosophy is vital. It can help us understand the present and understand how the world came to be how it is now. And as I said in the last series, Psychic Self-Defence, philosophy isn't some vague hobby separate from real life. Thinking is an action, a vital action and a practical action. And philosophy, at its best, helps us gain clarity and understanding and can show us what ideas are governing the world. Speaking of the world, I'll drop you back into the Gaira now, where Ted is going to tell you about some of the trees native to the place. Now listen closely here because Ted doesn't hang about on any one topic for very long as we meander along the path through the trees. Everything we passed, plant and animal alike, became an opportunity for learning and for deepening our understanding about the world. We get happily sidetracked by a dog at one point, but besides that, he mainly talks about trees and their vital importance as habitats in and of themselves.
4: Now interestingly, we have five native willows in Ireland, Tommy. One of them is the rusty willow. That's not disease. Mm. That's one of our willows that goes rusty, because of the action of a little metallic blue beetle that is obligate, it's not only associated, we have 267 insects associated with this native species. Associate, but obligate means they've no other plant. So when ash dies out, of of the 1055 creatures that live on Irish ash, about 140 are obligate. So Was it's not the loss of ash, it's the loss of lichens and mosses and insects specific to the chemistry of the ash tree. Can you dig what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's, a, that's how I see it. If we lose the ash, it'll be a heartbreak. I saw Elam going away from us. Cause I remember avenues of Ellum where I grew up in the north we, we had a lot of Ellum in the hedgerows both English and indigenous witch Ellum mm. and then the Ellum began to die really from the 50s 60s the 90s goodbye Bruno See goodbye you. Petal <laughs> what a gorgeous creature I, I would be into Steiner Rudolf Steiner mm. I was associated with helping in in, in the preparation of Ireland's first Steiner School in Hollywood County Town in 74. Steiner tells us that to get through the period ahead, he describes this period of unrest. He says, to get through, we must cultivate an ability to see the spirit in everything, in the plant, in the dog, in the human, in the insect. Go behind the material. And see the ultimate cosmic and d- divine pulse of life. I, I see it so easily in dogs. Now, this is the alder. The alder is an important tree. It fixes nitrogen. It's not a clover, it's not of the family of legume, but it, on its roots it has the equivalent of rhizobia or tunkia. Tunkia it's called. This tree can live underwater. it extracts nitrogen from the atmosphere and feeds itself and feeds the plants around it. The alder supports 79 insects, many of them obligate. It's a deciduous tree, we have 27 trees in Ireland, 5 of them are evergreen. Ivy I adore. Tom, before you start thinking health and safety and choking, Ivy does not choke a tree. Ivy has to be managed on the public pathway, but Ivy, in fact, is a major ecological plant. Of all of our 832 vascular flowering plants, vascular plants in Ireland, Britain has many, many times more because Britain was still part of France for another 1500 years after Ireland became an island. It still took in more bats. It has 18 species. We have nine. It took in so much more, mulberry, hornbeam, beech, small-leaved lime. We've none of these things. There are botany, dogs mercury, uh, oxlip. None of these were seen, uh, ever seen. They never made it here. But ivy, in, in the migration, up after the ice age, up the land bridges of Spain and Italy and up, up through Croatia, the third land bridge that brought the forest up into Northern Europe, Ivy is the only plant that with its 200 cousins in mother Africa, flowers in November, and fruits at minus 10 in February into March. Every other plant adapted to the temperate zone of the planet. This plant, therefore, is a major source of uh, of protein-rich pollen, um, for the last of the wasps, the queen wasps must put on weight before they fall asleep. Any beekeeper will tell you, this is the ultimate pollen. Ivy honey is extremely powerful. is extremely powerful. Any beekeeper who has ivy honey. They're worth befriending, Tom. No, but really, they're worth cultivating. I'm, I'm being exploited. No, but really, I, I, I encourage you to, 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 to. Um, I encourage you to cultivate relationships with beekeeper. The right beekeeper. The yeah, wrong yeah, beekeeper yeah. is a waste. Space. I call them bee guardians. I don't use the word beekeeper. Really, I use the word bee guardians, because they are endangered.
0: Can I ask you? Cause there is that, I've heard that idea expressed before, that if, if you see ivy on a tree, it's bad for the tree, that it's, it's choking. Where does that idea come from? Is there, is, there, is there instances where that does happen or is it just... Oh incident?
4: yes, there are instances for ivy, but what I observe, in the forest, in the wildwood, the toon woods, back up the guerra, ivy never seems to overwhelm. Number one. Except that the tree appears to be stressed and poorly rooted, has lost anchorage, and the battery is failing. The root of a tree is its battery. That's why I said earlier the more you cut a tree, the more it grows. Bar Scots Pine, our only tree that will not be cut to the ground and grow again. All of the others spring back up. The uh, heron. A grey heron. Joni the bug they say here. The Irish for grey heron is Noreen by the way. Noreen is the Irish for, there's lots of herons here. I'm inspired by heron because I cannot be still. I'm working on it. I find it so difficult to be still. Yeah, yeah. Though I do thankfully have a breath, uh, meditation, breathing technique. To, oh look at this, uh, that's a, that's one of the Mallard, one of the wild Mallard ducks. Places full of ducks great crested grebes and since the 90s the um, egret, the little white egret is now breeding here in, in the tall reed mesas and acre after acre of, of, of flag iris the iris again is also an oxygenator while the alders fixing nitrogen and cleaning the water taking leachate from the farms that are overly slurrying where there's no riparian riverside vegetation to intercept and lock up the phosphates what does that mean riparian Riparian, this is riparian any vegetation along a water course very important Mm. it's intercepting runoff so iris uh what its job is doing is it's loading the water with oxygen absolutely loading the water with oxygen so we're just walking along here Uh, so ivy I suppose one of the biggest killers as I understand it at this moment in time of woodland and trees is sunstroke sunstroke
0: what does that mean for a tree
4: it means it means the shallow barks like beech. Uh, beach were, was brought here, it's not native here, it was brought here, we think, by the Earl of Wicklow to his Shelton Abbey Domain.
0: If you listen to this podcast as it goes out on DDR, then today is the 7th of December 2022. Yesterday, the 6th, was the one-hundred year anniversary of the foundation of the Irish Free State. The Anglo-Irish treaty, the treaty which officially ended the War of Independence, was signed the previous December 1921, but the Free State, a dominion of the British Empire, was officially established a year later in the midst of civil war. This established Ireland as an apartheid state, with a border dividing the six counties in the north from the rest of the country. One of the first acts of the Free State, still a dominion of the British Empire, was to disempower the local community and city councils throughout the country. They did this claiming it was to improve efficiency. But realistically speaking, it was because most councils were under Republican control, under anti-treaty Republican control, which means they would have been hostile to the newly formed government. The Free State Government imported from America the corporate model of governance. Councils would still be elected by the local population, but all executive power would be vested in the city or county manager, effectively the CEO of the council, who was hired, not elected, but hired by the Minister for Local Government. This system remains in place to this day, so this country does not really know local democracy. Do you remember Maureen O'Connor speaking at the beginning? All the power resides in Dublin. Also during this period the deforestation of Ireland intensified. Ireland was once completely covered in forest. Deforestation began with the early settlers but didn't really begin at a serious scale until the late middle ages under British rule. Unfortunately the economic system based on the exploitation of nature was in full swing by the time the country gained some level of independence. And today, while well, despite small pockets of vitality like the Guerra, it is still the norm. I'll send you back to Ted now. He told me about how deforestation was carried out under British rule, which you'll hear more about in the next episode. But for now, he takes up the story around the time of the formation of the Free State. He explains how, in order to placate the anti-treaty republicans and their supporters, the best land, including forested land, was carved up amongst farmers. We come on to independence. It
4: progressively, at accelerated, got worse after independence in 1922. It got worse because now the Land Commission was given compulsory purchase powers under the 1923 Land Act. And under that Land Act, the Land Commission was allowed... Good day, folks. Hello. Hello. Under that, the Land Commission was allowed compulsorily acquire the estates. Mm. And Parnell had started the project in 1880. The Land Acts break up the estates and give the Catholics ownership of their little farms. That started in 1880 by by 1923 one of the first acts passed by our new though in our new parliament was to granting the land commissioners compulsory acquisition you have a week to get out lord we will pay you five four and a half percent bonds over many years but you're out in a week you may keep your domain your estate officially is ours and it would be distributed they weren't distributed the farmers were given a freehold title in exchange for the payment of an annuity. So, the 1923 Land Act, can you imagine the effect? After centuries, any tree was reminiscent and symbolic of landlordism. Everything went on the new. When the estates were handed over, we, Clearfeld, ripped out. Hundreds probably oh, yes tens of thousands of miles of hedgerow The landlord and his agent was no longer there. We were given. We weren't swaddled Isn't you know the way swaddling happens at birth you're swaddled yeah. and yeah. slowly released yeah. And outraged and plundered people were given the freehold overnight. They didn't know what to do with it The first things to go were the the beautiful timbers that the landlords their agents and others had planted in the estates. They're all gone. Mm. Killarney National Park, after it was given as a gift to the state, how was it dealt with? It was given to the Forestry Commission. The Forestry Commission passed it on to whom? Yeah, Queen's got their hands on it. Mm. So there's large areas of Killarney National Park are destroyed from forestry, but then the Wildlife Service clawed it back. Now we have a lot of that going on. Mm. Uh, a lot of estates were granted as gifts and the land commission was appointed or the land commission simply compulsorily acquired and in that case where it was gifted the land commission was the recipient or grantee Mm. invariably the best land went into carving up new farms for the new state to quieten, to kill republicanism with kindness they were doing what What Gladstone had done earlier, Mm. killing home rule with kindness, giving us autonomous home forestry, home uh, local planning, home local government. Mm -hmm. Farming was coming definitely by the early 20s. We were going to have complete control of of planning and development and farming. That was all coming. But in the new state, to keep everyone quiet, Uh, the land commission accelerated the distribution of land rather the distribution of freehold to the landowners uh, and quietened the people quietened the people down but really when you look back this is no no country for trees or as Yates would say this is no place to grow old there's no old trees in the country they're all gone now insurance has us clearing everything because of fear of health and safety. Yeah. But I would say, I'm thinking of another estate, a very big estate, Castle Freak in Clonachilty. You haven't heard of it. Castle Freak, the, 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 ninth, law, the ninth Baron Carbury lived there till he headed away off to Africa and bought another estate. But a local solicitor in 1922, uh, his name was um, Wolf, Wolf, a local solicitor came in and bought out cheap and the best mature woodlands were gone. Collins himself intervened and halted him and said oaks belong to the indigenous people of the island, hands off, Mr. Wolf. Mr Wolf, a young solicitor. You see there was a grab for resources once we got independence. The IRA were still blowing up bridges. The country was in a dreadful state. It was a bare win in Doyle Aaron for the treaty. You know, it wasn't a big uh, it wasn't a big majority. There was chaos on this island. There was land grabbing and murdering. So a lot of a lot of mistakes were made. The break of the estates was not undertaken subject to the preservation of woodland and where it was it wasn't monitored or enforced or implemented. 1928 was, in, was our, really our first indigenous forestry act and the hope and plan was to build up the forest and break our dependence on British coal. Uh, Sinn Féin was founded in the 28th of November 1905 in the Rotunda which is now I believe the, the maternity hospital at the top of O'Connell Street. Griffith was asked what is Sinn Féin? He said Sinn Féin has two pillars the hydroelectrification of Ireland and the reforestation of Ireland and he was asked why is that? He said, we, there's no independence unless we're economically independent that was the definition, ourselves alone, shin Féin, mm-hmm. self-sufficiency. But I am I'm, regret to say, that vision, it may be coming on now, but that vision, the state has never succeeded in going that extra mile and planting hardwoods. It takes three generations for a hardwood
0: to be of value to pay the state pensions. Quilche, the state company responsible for forestry, is the largest landowner in the country. Their model of commercial forestry relies almost entirely on the production of fast-growing Sitka spruce for export, used to make fibre board and paper. Ted once described to me that we the Irish are forest people without a forest, but the relationship between the people and the land is a complicated one. Colonialism inevitably shapes this whole story. It seems that, in attempting to throw off the empire and regain a sense of self, Ireland as a nation has aped some of the worst habits of its former master, because the economic system remains, one that relies on over-exploitation of the land. Ted just walked us through an area of wilderness which has thrived, despite environmental setbacks, and which has been maintained through positive, mutually beneficial human intervention. Now we'll go further north to County Leitrim, where there's a tense contradiction between our reliance on nature as a resource and our reliance on it as our home.
5: I find the mountain and the boglands, they're so majestic. Um, somebody who hasn't been walking on a bog, if they go up to do and if they were to walk 20 yards in on the bog themselves, they would see around them hundreds of species of um, moss and flora of different colors. Um, it would be like nearly all the colours of the rainbow multiplied just in one fistful, uh, one small area.
0: That was Joe Sheeran, a member of the Kilty Cloughor Community Council and the campaign group Save Doom Dew Mountain. Dewa Mountain is a peat bog where there are plans to build a huge wind farm. Joe works in the local heritage centre dedicated to Sean MacDiarmadae and he really loves bogs.
5: At the same time, these are carbon rich areas. Um, they're carbon banks. And uh, they hold far more carbon than could ever be saved through the wind energy uh, industry. Um, their problem is that to build turbines, it means we have to remove the, the um, bog. When we remove the bog, we actually release the carbon and it then starts to poison the atmosphere. It also endangers the uh, remaining bog because to create the wind turbines, we have to drain the boglands and remove the peat, and then the, that allows the water to run out. Uh, it puts the area at risk to landslide, uh, bog movements, uh, any application for a wind farm that i've seen it's they get a license for 30 years part at the end of it is that they remove the structure of the turbines and everything but in every application they everything is that they leave the foundation behind and by leaving that foundation that means that that area can never return to bogland again Now bogs take thousands of years, over 10,000 years since the ice age, uh, to form and it takes hundreds of years to restore a bog. Now if you leave a foundation behind, that means that area can never return to a bogland.
0: This conversation immediately brought to mind the double standards in the state's policy towards boglands. They try to stop people from cutting turf for local use, to prevent people from using a fuel source that they have relied on for generations. But for any large-scale industrial project that involves peat removal, the state has no issue facilitating it. In the case of Doom Mountain, we'd be looking at the permanent erasure of a part of the bogland and major destruction to the rest. People can't cut and sell turf in the local area, but they can buy German-produced peat briquettes in the local shop, and forestry or energy companies can do as they wish with the remaining unspoiled bogland. This came up in conversation as well with Nuala McNulty, another member of the Save Do campaign group.
1: I'm in a group called Save the Mountain. We, we went round all of the people up up here and they feel really aggrieved because some of them were actually brought to court for, for cutting turf up there. Yeah. And now Krilse can come in with the blessing of the government and just <sniffs> cover the whole place with turbines, dig up all of the bog, cause landslides. There's a joint venture between Krilse and the ESB and they're calling themselves Future Energy. And they have a proposal on the mountain behind me to build 18 giant turbines. Mm. There is nothing that size in Ireland or Europe. Now we're talking again, we're talking about bog land on Shale Rock. It is inevitable that there will be landslides on that. Yes, so, they the land, do they? could you own some of the land right. and some of it is in private ownership. The majority of it is Quilce owned. And I suppose to add insult to injury, Quilce have planted a lot of that land with monoculture forestry, which is the other bane of our lives in in North Leitrim and wrecking the biodiversity and wrecking the water quality. So they've planted this land, bearing in mind that Quilce is semi-state, so we own it. So it's our, our money, our taxpayers' money have gone into it. So they are plastering Leitrim in monoculture forestry, driving out the biodiversity, polluting the streams.
0: There's a lot coming up here. Anti-wind farm groups are often accused of being nimbiists, NIMBY, not in my backyard. Or of being anti-progress, of holding back the transition to renewables. But the more you look into this particular wind farm project, the less sense it makes. Of course, it's not just about wind energy, or forestry, or even fracking. Ultimately, it comes down to who controls access to the land and in whose interests it's being worked. Democratic control is very limited as it currently exists. Citizens are concerned primarily with protection of place, but on top of that fundamental survival position, there's the more complicated issue of who the land is being used for. We see that profit is the primary motivating factor in all of these projects. Why that's a massive problem will, I hope, be clear to you over the course of this series. The government's policy on boglands, if you judge by their actions, is difficult to grasp in its inconsistency. They say all the right words, that bogs need to be protected, when it comes to passing laws that govern the actions of citizens. But when there's a profit to be made, not even areas set aside as protected are safe.
5: Dew Mountain is a national heritage area. It's under, it's overlooking uh, Melvin, which is a special area of conservation and a special area of conservation is that the water from the lake is extracted to feed the as drinking water to the surrounding towns. Also, there is protected uh, fish. It's um, a guilleroot trout that's found in Lap Melvin. It's not in any other part of the world, and it's unique in that it's a fish with a gullet. So if sediment goes down through uh, the bog and reaches into the lake, it'll kill off this and endanger these species. And um, also white crayfish have been found down in the rivers uh, uh, close to Manor Hamilton. Uh, They're a very important species and again the same risk is posed through that species. The mountain and the habitats where the boglands are and the Uh, forestry is uh, habitats for hen harriers and buzzards and a large number of uh, protected species. The hen harrier there's only 125 uh, pairs left in the country and there's a number up in the mountain and even um, the uh, companies employed to do the to, to do bird watching counts, uh, confirm that there are uh, nesting sites in that area.
1: We have a special area of conservation one side of the mountain. So if there's a landslide and feeder streams to that get polluted, well then we have a huge fish kill in an SAC. The, this side of the mountain, all of the feeder streams are going to that Gill, which is the source of human water, human water for human consumption. Um, so it's, a, it's an absolute nightmare. And it's, it's as if our government have just woken up and there's a race for renewables. And I'm always a little bit wary of the relationship with big business and with government. Because here we are, we have targets, uh, and it's, it's, let's get them done quick without really thinking it out. I mean, where's the community-based element of any of this? Leucham has four or five community energy groups, one of which I'm a a member of, and we're looking at sort of community-based solutions rather than having all of these things feisted upon us. What can we do as a community? But, you know, Crete don't want to know, ESB don't want to know. And not only do you have... The wind farm up there. You have everything that goes with the wind farm. So you have battery storage. So you're looking at mining for cobalt, lithium. So you're going to be polluting land in developing countries. All of this has to be connected to the grid. So you're looking at copper, more mining. So there, as far as I know, or I can't see, or I haven't found any proper study on all of this. It does actually yeah, I, I can't see with, with uh, okay, it, there's a payoff for some people. And what really gods me too is there's this community scheme where renewable energy companies pay money to community groups. But these companies are so heavily grant-aided. It's actually our own money that's coming back. And it's a bit of a payoff. It's a bit of a bribe.
0: What Nuala is hinting at there is a strategy commonly used by extractive companies when they first come into an area. You'll hear about this in relation to other projects that are covered in the upcoming episodes. These companies do their homework on the area and the people. They send in PR firms first to get to know local leaders and local groups. They sponsor local GAA teams or community events. And as Nuala pointed out, they are embedded in a complex network of extractive projects covering the whole world, even renewable energy relies on colonial, extractive projects which have their own terrible social and environmental costs. They're not the silver bullet solution they are sold as, unfortunately. The companies behind these projects are always far better resourced than the local population, so anyone attempting to balance the picture for people has a serious fight in their hands. The people of Leitrim at this stage though are seasoned veterans, having led a national campaign to ban fracking. There are several groups in Leitrim focused on battling extractive, destructive industrial activity in the county. Love Leitrim was the anti-fracking group, Treasure Leitrim focuses on the recently issued mining licences and Save Leitrim is focused on forestry. These two campaign groups that you're about to hear from highlight the same fundamental issues, control over land and a narrow focus on profit-driven extraction.
6: In Save Leitrim, our group is four years old now. It was established by a variety of people coming together who saw issues with social issues, community issues, environmental, biodiversity issues with the whole forestry pressure in Leitrim. So we looked at how we could tackle the issue. So we did organise kind of protests at some of the forestry companies, at some of the farms that were being planted. We did a couple of public events to raise awareness and then we looked at well how can we change policy and what we were seeing then was that the licensing system was open to comment and appeal. So we started to look at the licenses that were being applied for because it's a public process where the public can interact with that. So we started to put in observations and all afforestation licences and then we started to see that they were continuing to be approved, despite what we were saying. So the system was very poorly resourced and there was an awful lot of environmental, ecological and biodiversity issues that weren't being addressed at all in the licensing. So they were just firing them out, like confetti, and there was no consideration of what that meant on the ground until we started pointing it out. And I suppose what helped there was that there was a couple of judgments in the European Court that said Ireland was derelict effectively, in many ways, in applying EU environmental regulation. We started to raise all these issues on licences, and so they started to turn down some of the licences because they the no option. They were so, so poorly put together, and they were uh, uh, totally ignoring some of the requirements. And uh, so that began to clog up the system. So it ground the licensing system almost to a halt. And that is what you'd hear in the public domain. So we made an observation on every single licence that went in in County Leitrim for about three years. We're not doing as many now, but we're more targeted now at what we're doing and we're going after issues there. And we've gone to the courts as well on judicial reviews on two cases.
0: You'll hear more from Brian in the next episode, speaking on the history of forestry and forestry activism. Around this time, I also went to speak to Mitchell at his home. Eddie is an activist with Love Leitrim and Treasure Leitrim.
2: I suppose our situation is that we didn't really know. We have forty-seven townlands um, in in North Leitrim that are that are down now for prospecting for gold goldmine. The, the company that's doing that has been here since two thousand and fourteen, and we didn't know. We we were very busy fighting other battles like fracking and stuff, and we just didn't we just didn't really know. Like the farmers now in the area. That are of interest to them, don't didn't know, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it was a bit of a shock to us that they're
0: they've actually been operating in Newtun since twenty fourteen. They're doing yeah. preliminary explorations or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: taking rock samples out of streams and walking people's land. And yeah, yeah. they should they should have been contacting people. Yeah, yeah. But they, it appears that they haven't. At least we don't. We we can't find anybody that they've been in contact with. You know? Yeah.
0: yeah. And in terms of the, the the lands that they are operating on, are are, are most people against it, or are some people kind of open to the idea? Or?
2: Well, I suppose it's it's very new. Yeah. So at the moment, um people are trying to figure out what it all means, you know. And still, no company has ever spoken, you know. So pe- people are people are against it, I'd say. But it's very early, really, to say that, you know. After. Because we've been fighting fracking since 2011, and all that happened in that campaign, that the legacy of that now has a huge impact here. Um, like people would have been um, slower to speak about, slower to come out against um, fracking. You know, even though everybody came out against it eventually, yeah, there yeah. would have been a, a period where people wouldn't have understood it. You know, whereas I think because fracking was such a controversial issue here, we've been sort of through a whole resource extraction campaign and now people are they're coming out very quickly against against gold mining you know
0: yeah ready for um, it and what's there's been one company operating what company is that you know
2: so galantis 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 gold
0: yeah right that's that name's familiar they they they're operating somewhere else
2: they're operating in oma Oma, they have a gold mine in oma seemingly it was an open cast mine for years and now they're starting to tunnel underground now, so they exhausted everything that they had at the surface, yeah, yeah. and now they're, now they're, they're going down i don 't think it was that successful. Um, i don 't think they made a lot of money. you know what i mean i'd say it's it 's probably hard enough to compete on a global market you know with a mine in Ireland.
0: And I read before when because I, I was up talking to the people in Greencastle there a couple of years ago, uh, so I did a bit of looking into it then and um it said that there is, there is a, a reasonable quantity of gold. The seams are fairly widespread, but because of the way, because of the nature of them, there's a, it's not like there's a big clump of it in one place. It's all kind of spread out among the rocks. So it's, it's, there's no... They're, they're, they're literally scraping the barrel. It's kind of similar to fracking. It, it reminded me a lot of fracking in terms of how much effort it was going to take to get a relatively small amount of gold out of each patch. Yeah, That's how yeah. Spread out it is. Do you know?
2: well, we'd have been connected to them because of our fracking campaign. So we would have known a lot of those people long before we ever knew that there was gold mining here, even though there was prospecting licenses for gold mining here, and we didn't know when we were up there, you know. But um, yeah, I think that using cyanide, um, to remove gold has meant that they can access um, gold efficiently in you know when there's even when there's very little gold, um, what wouldn't have been commercially viable in the past is probably more readily available now when you use cyanide, you know, to, for a process. Um, we're, we're only starting to figure out all of that, you know, we're only starting to understand what the processes are, you know.
0: You'll hear more from Eddie and the others in the rest of the series. In the next episode, I'll take you further north to the Sperrin Mountains in Tyrone, where local activists have been fighting a gold mining company for several years now. Their campaign is at a more advanced stage than the one in Leitrim. And there are many lessons to be learned from both. We'll also take a deeper look at the history of capitalist land grabbing here in Ireland. There's no simple straightforward story here with a happy ending or a sad ending. All of these things are in motion and by the time you've heard about them the situation will have changed. You'll find links to the various campaign groups covered in this series on the Turning Earth blog. You'll find that as well as links to the Patreon and other social media pages by going to linktree.com forward slash turning That's it for the first episode remember if you want to support the podcast please subscribe on patreon patreon.com forward slash turning earth. if you can't afford to subscribe there's lots of other ways to help you could leave a review on itunes or whatever podcast apps you use and please subscribe on youtube spotify whatever social media you use but really the most helpful thing you can do is recommend it to some friends this is independent media it doesn't get heard unless the people that listen to it and value it share it with other people um, I recently spent 20 quid on an Instagram ad I might as well have rolled it up and smoked it I don't think it did that. Uh, and most importantly if these things matter to you talk to your friends and family about it what I'd love is if people who don't already agree with this perspective or that are sceptical about climate or environmental issues have a listen to these podcasts so if you know anyone like that please share this with them lastly if you want to ask any questions or if you think I got something wrong please email me at turningearthradio at gmail.com stick with us here on DDR Open Electrics is up next. It's long before.